Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, William the Conqueror, Edward the Third, Henry the Fifth, William the Fourth, Victoria, and George the Fifth, with your hosts Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, where we have reviewed all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. We picked out 18 monarchs that we thought stood out from the rest as having that certain something, that star quality that we call the Rex Factor. Rex Factor! And we're now having playoffs to determine who is the greatest of them all. Yes. So we've got three rounds, and we're currently in the first round. Uh, the first round has three groups of six, mm-hmm. and the top three from each group go through to the next round. And we're listening now to group C. The final group of the first round. At the end of the episode, I will vote, Ali will vote, Mm -hmm. both will be in secret, and then there will be a survey online so that you, the listeners, can also vote. And you can find the link on rexfactor.wordpress.com, also on Twitter, at rexfactorpod, and on our Facebook page. Yes, I'll keep posting it. So, this is going to be quite uh, an interesting one, because... It's a real split between the old and the new. Yeah, yeah. Modern versus ancient. So it's going to be that tricky thing of comparing kings who are actually in the field with a sword held aloft Mm. doing it themselves and the constitutional monarchs who, of course, can't be doing everything directly, Mm. but stuff happens under their reign. Do we take that into account? We'll all all come out in the wash. So, biographies of the six monarchs. Let's do them. First of all, William the Conqueror. Yes. Born in 1028, which was 986 years ago. That's a long time. And he comes to the throne, of course, in 1066. Ah, uh, yes, of course he does. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> uh, at the age of 38. William is brought up in Normandy. He's the illegitimate and only son of Robert, Duke of Normandy. So he has a lovely nickname. And he becomes Duke of Normandy uh, at the age of about seven or eight. Oh. Gosh. He comes to uh, adulthood, of course, 1047 to 60. He really then asserts himself against his rivals in France. He also claims that in 1051, Edward the Confessor named him as heir to the English throne. Yes, now was this PR? Well, it seemed unlikely, certainly, that he would have gone over to be named heir, but he really does act for the next sort of 15 years like he is the heir right. to the throne. Harold Godwinson uh, gets shipwrecked in Normandy in 1064 and is made to swear an oath of allegiance to oh, William. Yeah. So William clearly thinks that mm. he's got it in the bag, but in 1066, when Edward the Confessor dies, Harold Godwinson is crowned King of England. A cheeky monkey. William said to have gone black with fury, <laughs> raises a large fleet, and then ultimately defeated Harold at the Battle of Hastings. Brilliant. Well done, that man. Initially, only a few Normans really given any position of power, so the Saxon nobles stay in a prominent position at court. And indeed, 1067, he goes back to Normandy with many of these Saxon nobles. Team away day. Team away day for the Saxons and the Normans. <laughs> However, from 1067 that year, he starts to face rebellion all across the country for pretty much the next five years, but his powerful barons, castles, and his own brutal response hmm. sees all of these resistance fighters defeated. He spends most of his final years actually in France because his rivals there are now powerful again. Right. 1087, he was in the process of sacking the town of Mantes when he fell from his horse and died from wounds after the saddle struck him in the stomach. Yeesh. I remember he had quite a big stomach because at his funeral when they were stuffing him into the coffin, it burst. Yeah, gross. Uh, so 1087, William dies at the age of 59. 
All right, well then, next one. Skip on a few centuries to Edward III. <laughs> Plantagenet king, born in 1312, and he comes to the throne in 1327, so he's just 14. That's, um, well, that's pretty young. He's the youngest Rex Factor winner. Is he? Uh, oh, that's a Rex Factor. Right into your ears. Um, so his father, Edward II, had had a very divided court, promoting favourites, mm. not getting on with the nobles, and he was deposed by his own wife, Isabella of France, yeah. and her lover, Roger Mortimer. Not the best. So initially, Edward is pretty much a puppet king for Mortimer. Mm. However, he's got a, uh, a band of knights, a group of young friends, and they break into the castle where he was being held, overpower the guards, free him from Mortimer, and Mortimer is executed. I mean, and that then his life is just one fantastic fairy tale adventure. And he starts the Hundred Years' War. Charles IV of France died without an heir, so it goes off in sort of funny direction. And Edward says, well, my mum's the daughter of the King of France, so I've got a pretty good claim to the throne. Yeah. And when the new king uh, asks him to pay homage for Gascony, he says, rather than that, why don't I just be king? Uh, did he agree? Do you think it was a good idea? He didn't so much in no. France, so they have the Hundred Years' War, yeah. and there are years of glory for yeah. England. Huge victory against the French at Cressy in 1346. Scottish king was captured whilst he was on campaign, so he was great at home and abroad. Yes, perfect. Further victory at Poitiers in 1356, and at the Treaty of Brittany in 1360, Edward settles for a huge tract of French lands. The left bit? That's his settlement. Well, yeah, exactly, pretty, pretty much the left bit. of France, Good. as you'd expect. However, there are also difficult times for Edward. The Black Death devastates the population comes over in 1348 but there are further outbreaks mm. as the rain progresses and then the old generations start to die off not Manny Manny and many others oh. um, and Edward himself suffers a stroke so in the 1370s he's not really in control mm. of events the French king the new French king wins back pretty much all of the territory Edward had gained mm. and uh, Edward withdraws from public life influenced by his mistress Alice Perez and dies of a final stroke 1377 at the age of 64. Well, pretty pretty good, though. Next up, Henry V. Yes! More hen... Um, More hens? <laughs> More Hundred Years of War. Okay. Henry V is born in 1367 and comes to the throne in 1413 at the age of 26. So what's his relation to Ed Edward III? Oh, he is Edward III's great-grandson, I think. So, Richard II, who was the successor of Edward III, but actually his grandson... Right. Because the Black Prince had died. Right, yeah. He is deposed by Henry IV, who then struggles throughout his reign to establish the Lancastrian dynasty against various rebellions. But things are looking up for England and for the potential in the Hundred Years' War, because the French king, Charles VI, is suffering from madness. Hooray! Glass delusion. And oh, yes. thought he was called one. George. So there was a virtual civil war during the Regency between the House of Orléans and Burgundy. And Henry wants to pick up where Edward III left off in 1360. Mm. So he unites the nobility and restarts the Hundred Years' War. Oh, I can't get enough of it. And we have glory years once again. Mm -hmm. He uh, leads a legendary campaign, 1415, with a huge victory at Agincourt against a much yeah. larger French force. I mean, actually, possibly better known than any other battle in English history. Well, maybe apart from Hastings. Yeah, but I don't know. But we lost that we, battle, uh, we so lost it doesn't count. Exactly. I don't know. Um, he then allies with the Burgundians in a campaign of siege warfare, ultimately retaking 
Normandy. Mm. So he's that gone. had gone as well. We'd lost that. Oh yeah, we'd lost Normandy, but he's oh, now back. Man. He's taken it all back. Uh, then in 1420, the Treaty of Troyes recognised Henry V as the heir to France. Yeah, that's pretty big news, isn't it? And married the King of France's daughter. That's pretty good claim. 1420 to 22, he continues his campaigning, but after taking Meaux, the stronghold of the Dauphin, he fell ill and died in 1422 at the age of 36 from dysentery, six weeks before the King of France oh, died. Every time I hear this story, I hope for a different ending, but it's always the same. Even if he died one day yeah, after, just yeah, that he could have been the King of France. Yeah. Moving on to a rather different world, William the Fourth. He's born in 1765, which is only 249 years ago. Comes to the throne in 1830 at the age of 65, which yes. is still the oldest Yeah, ever. that's epic. Yeah. So we have the Hanoverian dynasty mm-hmm. in tow now, who originate from Germany, and indeed have largely remained German yeah. for a lot of the period. So they're not hugely popular, and they don't have as much power as the old monarchs. So Parliament and Prime Ministers are now rather supreme. George III, of course, suffered from madness. Yes. Lost America. Did he think he was called George as well? Uh, or maybe he thought he was called Charles. Yeah. Maybe there's some weird time travel yeah, going yeah. on. <laughs> Somewhere somebody else shattered because he was made. <laughs> so George III is mad. George IV and all of the brothers, all of the sons of George, are very debauched. I love this story of survival. It's brilliant. <laughs> so they're not very popular, the monarchy of this period. William, at a young age, is sent off to the Navy. Because yeah. George III thought that he needed straightening out and having some discipline. But instead, he just becomes a regular sailor. <laughs> drinking, gambling, <laughs> womanising. But when George IV's daughter, Princess Charlotte, dies, there's a rush among all the other sons of George III to produce a legitimate heir. William marries uh, Adelaide, but sadly, no heirs are produced. No surviving heirs are produced. Yeah. However, George IV was unhealthy. The next brother, Duke of York, dies in 1820. So William mm. is suddenly... He's having alive. a good chance to become aligned to the throne. So he's determined to survive, to make it there. So he has a very sparing diet, drinking lots of barley water, walking all over the place, just trying to stay fit and healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sure enough, he becomes king. Well, he won. In 1830, he wins. The big thing for William is the Great Reform Act in 1832. It was rejected by the House of Lords, but after protracted negotiations, William threatened to create new Whig peers, mm. who would just force it through, and uh, the bill was passed. That's, that's an active role. Because if he didn't want to see this reform act come through and, and make life better for people, he could quite easily have not threatened and Very easily. Mm. Later in his life, he and his wife Adelaide dote on their niece, Victoria, yep. who will be the next in line to She the sounds throat. exciting. But there are clashes with the mother, who is yeah. enthralled with her private secretary. So William declares his determination to live long enough that Victoria will succeed him without needing a regency. And he dies in 1837 at the age of 71, but he lived long enough for Victoria to turn 18. And next up, indeed, it is Victoria. I'm I'm just going to pop out. Victoria is born in 1819, 195 years ago. God, that is a long time for someone so recent, same century, last century. And comes to the throne in 1837 at the age of 18. Mm. Just makes it. As we said, she was suffering the Kensington system. So her father, the Duke of Kent, hadn't been liked by George IV and then died in 1820. So her mother left pretty much on her own, no one to look after mm. her, and she falls under the spell of John Conroy. Mark Strong. Mark Strong, uh, who looks after the household. And they seek to control Victoria, so they keep her away from court, don't let her play with any other children. God. And they think when she's queen, she probably won't be 18, because William's not good health, we will control the regency. But Victoria is very 
strong-minded and she refuses Conroy. Every time he tries to get her to sign things, give him guarantees the position, she holds out. She's mm. not having it. Quite right. Stands up for herself. So, she becomes queen in her own right, get rid of Conroy straight away, and she gets married to Prince Albert. Albert is increasingly influential as well, so they're sort of effectively ruling together, kind mm. of a partnership. But in 1861, he was worn down by his excessive workload. He caught a chill after confronting their son, Bertie, about an indiscretion with an actress. <laughs> Gradually goes downhill, and he dies. Why do people always die of chills in the old days? <laughs> Just wrap up, yeah, people. Grief. So, Victoria grieves, wears black for the rest of her life, largely abandons public life, oh. other than opening memorials to Albert. Yeah. Yeah. And Republican sympathies are starting to grow as well, so it's getting a bit dangerous, but she starts to come back to the fold. Um, her gilly in uh, Scotland, John Brown, helps Ooh. to regain her confidence. More of that later. Um, the flattery of the Prime Minister Disraeli and her intense dislike of the other Prime Minister Gladstone <laughs> sees her gets coaxed back into politics. But it's really when Bertie, who she blamed for Albert's death, falls almost fatally ill with typhoid fever. Nation was on tenterhooks. Victoria was at his bedside, but he pulled through. Hooray! She is back in yeah. the limelight, and it's a golden age of Britain. Hugely popular celebrations for her golden and diamond jubilees. The empire is expanding, and she's very much the embodiment of Britannia, of the mm. empire. She's at the centre of it all. But 1900, she finally went into a decline and peacefully passed away with her family at her bedside in uh, 1901, when she was 81 years old. George V. Yeah. He was born in 1865, 149 years ago, and he came to the throne in 1910 mm -hmm. at the age of 45. But the big crisis at the time is um, the fallout of the 1909 People's Budget. Liberal budget, Lloyd George's budget, the House of Lords rejected it. Naturally. Which is pretty much unprecedented to reject um, a budget. So Asquith, the Prime Minister, demanded that George V promise to create new peers if they won a subsequent election. Again, quite like the great format. Yeah. And forth. George V doesn't like it at all, but thinks it's the best thing to do, makes his support known, the budget is passed. But there are other crises going on as well before the war. The suffragettes um, campaigning for women to get the vote are increasingly militant, and home rule crisis in Ireland is threatening to erupt into a civil war. Mm -hmm. But, thankfully, the First World War starts in oh, 1914. Phew. Saves everybody. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, um, the heir to the Austrian throne, is assassinated by a Bosnian Serb, and through various complicated means, this results in Britain and France going to war with Germany. Yeah, it's too complicated to go into. <laughs> exactly. There's the infos out there. Um, it's a tough, tough war. Stalemate in the trenches, disaster in the east, heavy fighting, heavy casualties, but in 1918 there is an Allied victory. And there's real um, upheaval in the years that follow the war as well. Lloyd George was leading a coalition, but this is defeated in 1922. In 1923, a hung parliament leads to the first ever Labour government. Yeah, and it's a really testing time for George V. It could have been quite a difficult job to work with him. Very much. In 1926, we have the general strike which is where people all across an industry, all across the country, are on strike. 1929, the Wall Street crash sees a global depression. Mm. And in 1931, there's another coalition uh, with the Conservatives uh, forming the uh, national government. Uh, but, on the positive side, his Silver Jubilee in 1935, very uh, widely celebrated. Whee. Very popular. But, he's suffering from ill health. Mm. Uh, 1936, he dies at the age of 70, technically murdered by his doctor. Oh, yes. What's this along. again? Yeah, oh. Just to get it in the 
more respected press. So, life and reigns there of six monarchs, but how do they stack up factor by factor? Battleliness! So, I mean, we've got some biggies here. Mm. William the Conqueror. Mm -hmm. Of course the biggie is Hastings. Mm. 1066 is often seen as the starting date of English history. Unfairly. Unfairly, but it's still an incredible year, an incredible battle. And it's one of those very rare battles you can genuinely say that it completely changes the course of the nation's history. The battle itself, we had the Saxons in the shield wall on top of the hill, so the Normans with their cavalry and archers and infantry attacking uphill. Yeah. Really long and uh, attritional fighting. William at one stage had to remove his helmet to prove that he wasn't dead. Yes. Three times he was thrown from his horse. Three times? Three times. Good grief. So very much in the thick of the fighting at certain stages, but he is victorious. He wins that great battle. It was a bad horse. It must have been a bit bad. (laughs) That's another one where every time I hear the story, you think, oh, they nearly did it. Come on, let's do a different version. Exactly, so nearly. Uh, But really, the Norman Conquest is what happens after Hastings rather than just Hastings, because there are lots of people trying to stop him. Yeah remaining kings. So we've got the Godwins, the sons of Harold Godwinson in the southwest. Mm. Edric the Wild, who's in Herefordshire. Hereward the Wake in yeah. East Anglia. Edgar the Etheling, who is technically the only le- legitimate claimant to the throne, yeah. but is a teenager. And he's supported by Sven II of Denmark. Oh, lovely. And Malcolm III of Scotland. Yeah. So we've got foreign intervention. But William suppresses them all. The Godwins are driven from Ex- Exeter into Irish exile. Northern rebellions, very brutally repressed. He marches across the Pennines during winter to make Edric the Wild submit to him. He's, he's hard as nails, this guy. He's he? pretty hard. Last stand at Ely is defeated in 1071. And because in Normandy we've got all those territories around them, so there are lots of local skirmishes with no kind of real natural defences. Mm. So he's used to digging up quick forts strengthening the local area and then moving on. Mm. Saxons aren't really used to this. Mm. So when he's building all of these castles, which the Saxons have never seen before, they just can't take them out. Yeah, they can just hide behind their walls, leave a little force. And it can only take about six days to build them, and he leaves about 80 major ones. It's a huge effort, though. They're massive. I mean, they're to this day, aren't they? The motts can still be seen everywhere. They're huge, towering things. Mm-hmm. Mm. On the other hand... William, like you said, the Saxons were so close at Hastings. It's annoying. And in many other ways, the whole campaign, William waited nine months to launch the invasion, and he was stopped by bad weather. All that time, Harold was on the coast with a massive army and a massive fleet waiting for him. Yeah, it was cool. And because of the weather and Hardrada managing to get up further north, Mm. Harold Godwinson has to steam up to Yorkshire to fight uh, Hardrada, Mm. and William then is unchallenged when mm. he lands. What happened to his fleet? Did his fleet go up? His fleet well? had to disperse yeah. as well. So if William had landed when he wanted to, I wouldn't yeah. fancy his chances probably even of landing, but if he had landed. Yeah. They were only about an hour away from it getting dark, at which point they'd just have had to have stopped. Mm. Because... <laughs> Imagine that. Guys, guys, can we have a bit of calm, please? Uh, so it's far too uh, dark. Like a cricket time, when it... Time referee. When they, yeah, when they take the light <laughs> levels, yeah. <laughs> And um, in his final years in France, he does actually suffer some defeats. Really? So he defeated at Dole in 1076, and then his son Robert rebels and actually unhorsed William in a siege at Gerbury. He just is a bad rider. Maybe that's the problem. That's <laughs> all it is. <laughs> so that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. But uh, he's got some stiff competition mm-hmm. in Edward III. Mm-hmm. Edward effectively sets up an Arthurian court. Right. So the nobles have been divided under Edward II, but... 
He gets them all based around this idea of chivalry. They're doing these tournaments, really lavish tournaments, where they're competing in a military way, but you know, for fun. Mm. And uh, a lust for glory and warfare. He creates dukedoms as a way of getting a sort of an elite group. And of course, he starts he off. He creates dukedoms. Mm. Oh, no dukes before Edward oh, right. III. And of course, he institutes the Order of the Garter. That's a big one. Uh, Halidon Hill in 1333, um, Edward was besieging Berwick. Mm-hmm. Scots came along with a much bigger army, but English troops well placed on the hill. Scots had to get across a mast while the English longbows are firing at them. Classic. Hand-to-hand fighting, the Scots are routed. Yeah. The Battle of Sluy in 1340, a naval battle, quite oh. usually for this period. Um, early war efforts hadn't had a lot of success, actually, and Philip VI of France had a huge fleet, which, of course, is threatening for the trade and Edward's ability to get to France. Mm-hmm. So Edward really risks everything. He takes, if outnumbered in terms of fleets, but he just ploughs all of his ships into the first of the three French lines. So you've got the longbowmen on the English mm. ships clearing the decks and then they crash in, hand-to-hand fighting, take out the French ships. Dad, you don't see that in films either. That'd be amazing. A, a 13th century, tw- a 14th century naval battle. Something like 17,000 French casualties and 166 ships sunk or um, captured. Oh, well, I thought you were talking about like 30. Out of about 200. Wow. Of course, the most famous one is Cressy in 1346. Mm, that's a biggie. Edward landed in Normandy, drew Philip out to battle. About 35,000 French troops against 15,000 English troops. Yeah. But the English have got the longbows. Can fire about six hours a minute, mm. and that's each one. So yes. when you times that, five, it's basically like snow yeah. with all the arrows going on. Slaughter the French. Um, and lots of French leaders and dukes and counts and all this mm. sort of thing are killed as well. Uh, only 300 English losses. Just such an b- amazing loss ratio to yeah. Overwhelming victory for Edward. Captured Calais in 1347, and then in 1350 the French tried to take it back. Well, but they? Edward's got wind of this. Yeah. So he and his troops are hiding, in waiting. That's where we have uh, Manny. <laughs> yeah, of course, here he comes. Charging off. Manny! <laughs> they take up a position behind a false wall and then charge at the French army, who are coming on, expecting this to be an easy job. Edward raises his visor, shouts for England and St George, and then the rest of his army, the Black Prince, join in as well. French completely taken by surprise. I I mean, I just love this period. The Black Prince in 1336, the Battle of Poitiers, captures John II of France, Mm. the French king. Mm. And in 1360, the Treaty of Brittany, uh, Edward does relinquish his claim to the French throne, but he gets ownership of... Well, it compromises, really. Okay. So he gets uh, ownership of Calais, Gascony, much enlarged Aquitaine, so about a quarter of France belongs to Edward. It's pretty good going. But, as you said, that why question, it was meant to be a campaign of conquest in 1360, and ultimately it falters, so Brittany is a compromise, really. Mm. He doesn't actually conquer France. He doesn't quite do it, and like our next one, doesn't quite do it. Well, but he gets a bit closer to the line, Henry V. Very interesting to compare these two. Uh, before he becomes king, he um, fought very bravely at the Battle of Shrewsbury. This was against the Hotspurs. Um, Henry was in the thick of the fighting and hit by an arrow just below his eye. Oh, yeah? And he had to be dragged off the field because he didn't want to stop, even mm. though it was meant about like, six inches in or oh. something like that. A special implement had to be developed to remove the arrow. That's too good for words. I'm just trying to imagine that. Mm. 1415 campaign, he took about 15,000 men, besieged the heavily fortified Harfleur, took it, but the army was severely depleted by dysentery. So this meant he couldn't march on Paris, but he took the rather risky strategy of going across land 
to get to English-ruled Calais. French intercepts him near Agincourt, and, of course, we have the Battle of Agincourt. So this is, this is actually what he was trying to avoid, wasn't it? It was a risk going yeah. across, because they might get intercepted, and they did. So it could have been a terrible uh, error. 20,000 Frenchmen against 9,000 English troops, oh, which go. is why you don't want to get yeah. drawn into battle. And there's a three-hour standoff, but there being terrible weather, so it's very muddy ground. Um, and then the whole English army sprints through the mud to get a bit further forward so that the archers are within range. French send in the cavalry, but they are totally undone by the longbows and also by the mud. Mm. And then they send in the infantry all as one, but unfortunately they're heavily armed, whereas the English are lightly armed, so the French are pretty much sinking in the mud. How deep was this mud? Well, they, they're not literally sinking, but they, <laughs> they can't move very well. Right. Severely impeded. Really hard hand-to-hand fighting, French getting slaughtered, the English start using their bodies as duckboards, mm. improvising forts. Henry is in the thick of it, uh, at one point protects his wounded brother, and the crown on Henry's um, helmet mm. is actually broken by an axe oh. on stage. Wow. So, you know, he's at he risk, it's pretty hard, but it's an overwhelming victory. But that's really hand-to-hand, he wasn't there yeah. He was directing because they're so outnumbered and you know, yeah, they're trapped, man. really. Yeah. And his Normandy campaign is doesn't have the big set-to battle like Agincourt, but it's a really impressive just siege warfare all the way along these really heavily fortified towns. Captures Caen, uh, Vernoui, Falaise, and finally Rouen. Right. So he's retaken Normandy, mm. the ancestral home. And the Treaty of Twilight, we said he'd recognise as the heir to that French throne. Yeah, that's pretty big news. But... As in Corps, he does benefit from French errors and bad weather. Mm-hmm. Comes to the English aid yeah. rather than the French. Uh, at Treaty of Troyes, arguably, he might have overreached himself. So even if he become king of France, that's quite a lot to maintain. Yeah, and no one's done it yet. No one's been. And the Dauphin's still there. It's a bit of a you know sort of George W. Bush mission accomplished. The Dauphin's mm-hmm. Dauphin still rules half of France, mm-hmm. so he's still got to deal with that. So, actually, it's the claim isn't quite as strong as there's still a male heir there. Yeah. Okay. But he could have just bumped him off. He could, but he's going to have to maintain that somehow. Mm. And Edward III, who lives for ages and ages, Henry V very much dies. He's a dyer. At his peak. He's, he's a, a dyer. We now move to William IV. A rather different period in terms of battliness. Mm. But William is uh, a military man, technically. <laughs> he's a sailor. I king. bet he said that as well. You know I am a military I'm man. I'm a military man. <laughs> Uh, and very much the regular Jack Tar, as you said, drinking, gambling, fighting. Yeah, jolly good. 1780, William's ship was involved in chasing the Spanish fleet, so they did have a bit of combat. William gets very, very excited. Only a minor role, but other people do get killed on his ship. I can, I can so imagine this version of, the, of William I have in my head going, it's all, it's all, to the boats, <laughs> to the guns, tell you how. He's best mates with uh, England's greatest sailor, um, Horatio Nelson. He's best mates with Nelson. Best mates with Nelson. Uh, he becomes Lord High Admiral William, and um, he introduces unannounced inspections and asks lots and lots of questions. Hadn't really been this vigorous since Trafalgar in 1815. Mm. Uh, half annual, rep- half yearly reports on battle readiness mm. of the fleet. That's really good. Abolished uh, cat of nine tails punishment. Pretty decent That's little brilliant. Uh, naval yeah. career there. Yeah. On the downside, apart from that one example, he never really has any experience of proper battle. Mm. And given that this is the time of the Napoleonic Wars, and he is in the Navy during Trafalgar, mm. um, he was refused a commission during this period, partly because he broke his arm after falling downstairs while drunk, but also <laughs> because he spoke in the House of Lords against the war. 
Right. Um, so that's not quite so impressive. He's largely just a ceremonial role after 1790. And many people on the uh, the Admiralty aren't happy with him. So when he's Lord High Admiral, there are some people calling for him to be removed, which has to happen when on one day he encounters a fleet waiting for his Admiral, so he just commandeered it. I love this. And went off for a few days, it's and nobody knew brilliant. where he was. It's That's just the... Some of these stories that Kyra Rex actor, <laughs> I can't believe. that they're, they're just brilliant. I didn't know that counts against him. He's <laughs> still in the fleet. Yeah. Good on him. Yeah, great for good for him. So what um but what battles happened during his reign? Well, during his reign nothing really, because that's post Napoleonic. Okay. So that's another thing actually. When he's actually king, mm. haven't really got anything at all. Mm. Okay. But if we did, the navy be ready. Victoria. Mm. About 35 conflicts during Victoria's reign, so they're at war for every year of her reign. <laughs> um, and it's about an 86% win record for That's Britain good. overall. Um, they put down rebellions in the colonies like Canada and New Zealand, defeat the Ashanti Empire and ultimately the Boers in Africa. With the Zanzibar, we have the shortest war in history, which Britain win after just 38 minutes. Okay. Uh, protected India with the uh, interventions of Afghanistan, so Russia aren't able to mm. get to the jewel and the crown. And the British Empire in this period, it's the largest geographical spread of any empire in history. Covered about a quarter of the world population. It's about 10 um, million square miles and 400 million people. Crikey. And as people used to say, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Yeah. Victoria is very into military stuff. She's very engaged with military affairs and uh, international diplomacy. She understood the need that you would to maintain this empire. You have to be fighting a little bit everywhere at any given moment. Yeah, and she's very supportive of the troops. In uh, the Crimean War, she signed the commissions of every officer while the war lasted. Regularly reviewed the troops and made a point of waving them off, off on the ships. Knitted socks for the wounded. We still haven't got to the bottom. Never of that. quite got to the bottom of that, um, and was also involved in establishing the Victoria Cross. Mm. And during the Boer War, when she was a very old woman, this is the end of her life, but it gave her a new lease of life. Again, she's knitting garments, sending off tins of chocolate for the soldiers, visits the wounded and sends supportive letters to the generals, whilst when the politicians get down, she tells them to buck their ideas up and yeah. get winning. So, I mean, this that is Britain at its most powerful ever. Yeah. Never gets to that height again. It rules a quarter of the globe. It's the only time in our history... When we're the most powerful country in the entire world. Though it's not at its height, is it height in the 20s? Well, it's technically, it's geographical mm. height is the 20s, but we're by no means at our strongest no. in the 1920s. This is the peak of British military might. Yeah, I t- yeah. On the other hand, there's no Trafalgar or Waterloo in no. this reign. There's no big battle. Crimea is the only one where you actually see the big powers against each other and... They find that actually it's quite hard and it doesn't really it's not quite as easy as the achieve anything. Yeah, we have things like the Afghan War, the army was wiped out in a retreat, suffered defeat to the Zulus with spears, early disastrous defeat to the Boers. So actually we have a lot of poorly armed opposition that prove a lot harder to defeat than That's you might have imagined. I think we're just after these big defeats uh, after these big victories, we just go around mopping up the uh, territories that are really just defended by Stone Age communities that haven't discovered metals yet. On the other hand, Russia, Belgium, France, there are a lot of other countries that are you mm. know, trying to dominate as well, and they're not able to. Mm. And Britain's Navy, of course. Britain's Navy's keeping in check, yeah. Dominate the world. So, thank you, William IV. Thank you, well. <laughs> probably thank you, uh, Nelson, etc. Yeah. as well. Finally, mm. George V. 
First World War. Yes. Some successes to celebrate wildly. Okay. And the BEF do help stop the Schlieffen plan, so France isn't taken out of the war straight away. Oh, the big sweep round Paris, then back to face the Russians. Doesn't work. Some see the Battle of the Somme as the foundation of victory because of the long-term impact that this has on Germany. Right. Uh, the 1918 Hundred Days Offensive is what actually sees a rapid advance beyond the Germans' uh, Hindenburg line and leads to an Allied victory. Mm. So, you know, we do win the war. First World War also sees the first use of tanks in battle. Yes, that's big news, yeah. The, the birth of the RAF. Yes, even bigger news, yeah. Um, now, as you said, technically, after the peace treaties, Britain's empire reaches its zenith, an extra 1.8 million square miles. Mm. And another 13 million people. George V himself, like William IV, he does serve in the Navy, joins as a cadet in 1877, has proper duties like sweeping the decks and taking weevils out of biscuits. Nice. Ends up being promoted to commander in 1891. The best title there is. Uh, And during the First World War, George V uh, made seven visits to the Grand Fleet and five to the front line, Mm. i.e. in France. And in 1915, on a visit, he fell from his horse and broke his pelvis bone very badly. Mm. So he, he technically... Has a war wound. Yes, that's right. That's brilliant. Mm. Was he treated in a, in a war in a soldier's hospital? Uh, well, he had to be taken back on, I think, a, like a military hospital, that, a military ship. Like that, yeah. military ship. Yeah. On the other hand, the mm. First World War is not replete with glory. No. We have the horrible stalemates of uh, trench warfare: the mud, snipers, shell fire, the munitions scandal in 1915 with low supplies, and it turned out that we were firing oh, a lot yes. of duds. Gallipoli in 1915, Churchill's plan to attack the Dardanelles in Turkey, the naval assaults didn't break through, and then the army, taken apart by dysentery and uh, fighting with the Turks, evacuated about 44,000 killed, particularly hard-hitting on the Anzac troops. The Battle of the Somme is the most notorious in 1916. Intensive British bombardment, one last big push, thought that the German defences were taken out and they could just stroll across no man's land. Instead, 60,000 casualties on the first day alone, 19,000 of whom were actually killed. In the first day? by the Somme. Overall, 900,000 deaths for Britain during the war and a million and a half wounded, which was something like 17,000 per month, 4,000 a week, 566 per day, 24 per hour, or roughly one casualty per minute. Sobering. Hmm. In this 100th year anniversary. Indeed, indeed. So, them be the battleinesses. William IV, for all his fun larks stealing people's fleets and uh, being mates with Nelson, Mm. no militariness in his reign. He doesn't actually serve in the Napoleonic Wars. No, it's hard, isn't it, to compare him against people who have had battles, but he does put all all those naval reforms... He does what he could. I mean, there were no wars to fight. But he wasn't um, considered reliable enough to serve during the Napoleonic conflicts. No. But he was good at making sure the next fight with his re-energised navy would be a success. I wouldn't exaggerate too much the Williams re-energised navy. He made some important reforms, but I don't think they were earth-shattering that revolutionised. Maybe he was looking for a battle when he stole his fleet. <laughs> Just oh, I dread to think. <laughs> now that I turn up. To Belgium, had enough of them, come on. Went off and bombed Jersey or something. <laughs> they look French. I think William probably falls a bit short on battliness. It's not his oh, yeah, strongest I mean, forte. Not, no. 
George V is an odd one because, I mean, we do win the First World War, but it doesn't feel like... It doesn't feel like a victory. Yeah. Pyrrhic. Yeah. Although it is. It is a victory. Win the First World War. That's brilliant. But, as you say, it doesn't quite sit well. Mm. He does have a war wound. He does have a war wound, albeit falling off his horse. Mm. That's the problem, though, like William the Conqueror. It's a theme, isn't it? <laughs> what, else, what else could he have done? Well, that's the thing. He probably couldn't have done that much more. The interesting ones that will be difficult to compare, of course, is Victoria's reign with the medieval ones. Well, it's, it's interesting trying to compare all of these with the medieval mm. ones because, they've, um, because they were so much more actively involved... That's tricky, so we have to just take it on the basis of what was won during their reign. So George V, first of all, brilliant. But somehow it doesn't quite feel the same as Henry V. When you've actually got people fighting in the thick of it. I'm trying not to give that any credit, though, because he couldn't, as he was a monarch. Yeah. Uh, and, And to be honest, these medieval wars were just so aggressive... They were just about... They were very dangerous. They really were. I mean, someone could get seriously hurt. Mm. But there weren't, there weren't any... Uh, mind you, no, now there was a first of all. It was just territory. There was no principle. And I don't really like... I'm not such a fan of empire. I'm going to compare... No difference, though, is there? No, really, there's no to difference. France and no. the empire. It's just... I mean, the victorious reign and that battle against British Empire, that is when Britain is at its most powerful. So even though we don't have these great victories against France, for example... We are a small country that is controlling all over the globe. Yeah, so it's not control. like with all of these conflicts that the whole British army is there. It's one bit of it. Mm. So, you know, there's a bit trying to deal with somewhere in Africa. But there's another bit in Canada and in New Zealand. and Loads in India. Yes, true, but there isn't a big Trafalgar. And when we do come up against some vaguely stiff opposition like the Burrs, it, it all goes to pop and falls apart a wee bit. Good comparisons but, that we've got to be making has to be Edward III or Henry V on this battle in this question. The mm. 200 Years Wars kings, they both have this zenith at which they really dominate. Huge battles, Cressy, mm. Agincourt. I mean, they're, they're on a level with me. The thing with Edward III is that he loses it all as well. So by the end of the reign, he's pretty much back where he starts. So you have a decline with Edward III. You know, the last sort of ten years. But Henry died young. He might well have... I mean, it's, it's all conjecture, but That's he might thing, well have it? died. Dauphin could have come along and made his life a bit more tricky than he'd have liked. Mm. Uh, but the achievements, the point at which it was at its best, are sort of equal in my mind. And uh, although Henry's got the legendary stuff, I I don't know. Edward III, Manny, mm. Adventure, Hide and Behind Pretend Hedges, so to speak. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I love it. The other impression with Henry V, of course, is that Agincourt is in 1415. Yeah. And the Treaty of Troyes, where he's named the heir, is in 1420. So So that's five five years from starting to being named the heir. Well, uh, what about William the Conqueror, then? Well, exactly. There's uh, there's one big decisive battle which we gave a lot of points to Alfred for, and uh, because that also ultimately changed the course of English history. Yeah. And but he's sucks. got losses. He's he got does losses. have losses, but no, not really, not serious no losses. No territory losses after yeah. he's got to his height. Yeah, it's more that he isn't then able to go on from any, he kind of reaches his limit. 
But he doesn't lose England. England stays secure. And the fact that he secures England afterwards... Yeah, maybe he should be ranked higher in my mind, potentially, than those the two medieval, other medieval monarchs, because he keeps it. Mm. Maybe that's why he's so well-known. Hold on to it. He's the conqueror. <laughs> I don't know. An English loss, though. It is an English loss. Uh, that's why it doesn't sit so well. Yeah, we came across this when we did him as a king, didn't we? Mm. Um, It'll come down to the personal preference, won't it? Whether, you know, you love the sort of the the empire and all these people all over the world and these kind of Mm. Kipling and boys' own stories Mm. of adventure. You think of sort of Churchill going around the boroughs with his pistol escaping. But I mean, if you like that, you're going to love Edward III. But then you've got the medieval version of sort of the Arthurian quality of this sort of band of knights going off on adventures and taking it to France. Uh, Henry V is just this relentless machine that just goes off and, in a way, sort of maybe a bit reminiscent of Athelstan. Yeah, there's not much character that I can get hold of with Henry for some mm. reason. I, it's I, quite cold. Yeah, it is. It, the, when you said like a machine, that really struck a chord. Edward III, you feel it's a big adventure. Yeah. Henry V, it's just brutal mm. getting the job done. If he had a little mate called Manny, he might have swung <laughs> yeah. it. But Scandal. William the Conqueror, first off. Mm. Um, there was a legend that his wife, Matilda of Flanders, refused to marry him, but he just dragged her off by her hair anyway. Oh, that's not so nice. But I, yeah. I don't think that actually happened. Um, however, in 1049, Pope Leo IX did ban them from marrying on the grounds of consanguinity. But they, they do it anyway. Yeah. So, nah. Not juicy scandal, but the harrying of the North in 1070 <sighs> is pretty notorious, pretty notorious for William. Had all the crops... Heard chattel and food burnt and the arable land salted so that no more crops could grow up for a very long time. That's awful. So about a 1,000 metre squared wilderness, so York to Durham, barely inhabited. Again, should be more well known. Yeah. Like the uh, assassination of Edward the Fourth. Or George the Fifth. George the Fifth. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's so bad. It's so bad. I, I mean, that's major scandal for me. Unusually for the time, he was entirely faithful to his wife. Mm. So there's no real sort of juicy, salacious. It's just a bit of brutality. and It's, pre- it's pretty brutal. <laughs> if he's going to do it, he'll go hard. Edward III. Mm. Uh, we have Alice Perez, mm. a notorious mistress in his final years, seen as controlling him and wielding political influence. Right. And the uh, 1376 Good Parliament felt strongly enough to banish her from court. That's not really... I mean, that's just having someone... Well, but if, if Parliament mm. feels it has to banish somebody... Yeah. Mm. yeah. What was she doing, though? Was she just uh, getting away their getting plans? Getting influence and lands and money mm. and, and this sort of stuff. Um, also, of course, we have some pretty brutal plundering and pillaging in France. Yes. Um, troops given licence to do any kind of despoiling. Kind of ruins the, myth, uh, the adventure of it a wee bit. It would not have been pleasant for French peasants in this period. No. Henry V. It's the same story, really, of brutality. Agincourt, he ordered men to have their throats cut of about three to 400 French prisoners. At uh, Cannes, he was said to have ordered every male over the age of 12 to be killed. Wow. Because uh, they resisted his siege. Over the age of 12, that's yep. a bit much. Uh, Rouen, women and children at one point during the siege came out hoping to receive food but instead were forced into ditches with no food or shelter through the harsh uh, harsh weather. 
He, he is. He's a robot. He's Henry V, French Lair 3000. Although you did say at the time that they're quite right, it's a siege. If you give them food, it's just camping. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, but now he's a robot. Yeah. And uh, Moe in 1422, apparently he beheaded a trumpeter that he'd taken umbrage with during the siege. <laughs> if you didn't like it, change channel. That's a bit harsh. <laughs> wow. On the other hand... Mm. At Agincourt, um, it may have been that he saw the French rear guard kind of regrouping. So it might have been a heat of the moment. So just rounding up their captives, yeah. so doing a bit of post-battle admin. Yes. And, uh, oh, hang on, here they come, we've probably got ten minutes before yeah. they're in trouble. Yeah. Kill them all. Yeah. Mm. It's a bit more heat of the battle, you don't know what's going to happen. Could he have tied their wrists? It's a lot of wrists to tie when you've got an yeah. army charging at you. Yeah. Um, the sieges, uh, starvation was a reality of siege warfare, mm. and Henry was very successful at it. Yeah. So you can't be you can't be a nice besieger. No, true. It's not camping. And he gave people a choice. So if they surrendered, mm. then he would treat them very well. He laid down strict rules to ensure soldiers didn't plunder or rape or all that sort of stuff in captured towns. Took care to provide food to people when they surrendered. Yeah. So he does give a chance. If you surrender, then it's okay. It's not like Edward III where they're just rampaging all the time. That's it. I mean, that's what he's programmed to do. French Slayer 3000, if you surrender, I'll give you food. I don't think there's any compassion there, it's just what it's done. He's he's not one for the fun times. Deeply pious, um, totally chaste between his accession and his marriage. Mm. Uh, As Ian Mortimer, the historian, said, he did nothing which could be described as self-indulgent or fun. Oh, brilliant. Okay, have him round for dinner. William IV, on the other hand... This mm. is where he Here we us. go. He has lots of love affairs. Yeah. And he's, he's quite sweet, really. He's, he's just always on the lookout for love. Is he? And he never quite gets his luck. Um, Sarah Martin is one woman he was hoping for marriage, went off to Windsor to get George III's permission. George sends him off to Plymouth. Oh, poor William. At Plymouth, he falls in love with the merchant's daughter, Sally Wynn. Yeah. And uh, George III hears about him and goes, What? William playing the fool again? What, what? <laughs> Sends him off to the Americas. <laughs> i further and further away. Then in Havana, um, where England or Britain are enjoying a new cordial relationship with Spain. Yeah. So uh, William and Nelson visit the governor, and William starts paying the uh, Spanish apple's daughter rather too much attention. Mm. So Nelson has to extubate him before he causes a diplomatic <laughs> incident. Oh, crowns. Oh, Willie. Um, and one of the things for William is that he doesn't really fit in with the sort of very sort of high class cultured, sophisticated, mm. genteel society because he's a navy man and he's used to a rather l- rougher style of living. So bad language, forthright opinions, doesn't really have any airs or graces, and he's sort of a bit of a bull in a china shop from yes. the perspective of the Hanoverian mm. court. Tendency to spit in public. Oh dear! Had a repertoire of dirty stories. Okay. Terrorised the ladies of the drawing rooms. Um, there was one case in uh, one Mrs. Schellenberg. William the Fourth turned up drunk in a room of ladies, made it all of them drink champagne constantly until finally she protested, said this was too much. To which he jovially told her, "Hold your potato jaw, my dear," and then tried to kiss her hand to make up before someone dragged him off to the next hall. <laughs> potato <else>. jaw, brilliant. <laughs> So he's got a bit of that sort of like fun, that. messing yeah. around scandal yeah. that we like to see. Victoria. Go on. We amazed ourselves by giving her a score Yeah. on this one. Um, early on, um, 
signs of a girlish crush on her first Prime Minister, Melbourne. Mm. Um, as a result, when he first resigned and Peel, the Tory, was meant to become Prime Minister, Victoria refused to dismiss her ladies of the bedchamber oh, yes. and replace them with Tory yeah, women, yeah. as was the practice, as a result of which Peel couldn't form a government yeah. and Melbourne came back. Yeah, that's not only that's really getting involved in a way that's only going to force a constitutional monarchy. Yeah. Mm. John Brown, we mentioned earlier. Uh, so he supported her after Albert's death. Rumours in the press that they were lovers. Mm. She was nicknamed Mrs Brown. Mm. Uh, she dedicated her second Highland Journal to John Brown. First had been dedicated to Albert. Were these books that were sold? They were, to great acclaim. The public loves them. Oh, that yeah. helped to re-establish a link oh, okay. with the public. And she gave secret instructions that when she died, a lock of his hair and his uh, ring that he wore from his mother would be in her coffin. So she had mementos of John Brown in her coffin. Wow. As well as Albert, surely. As well as Albert, yeah. yeah. But still, it was, a, it was a little bit more mm-hmm. than we maybe expected. I reckon. And she was also surprisingly sensual. No, oh, Graham, making me feel sick. Uh, when an obstetrician uh, suggested she should avoid having any more children, um, she said, Oh, Sir James, <laughs> am I to have no more fun in bed? <laughs> if you took out the sir, it's straight from an early oh, bond James. <laughs> But, of course, this was only with her husband. Yeah. So it's not that scandalous. No, it's not at all. Finally, George V. Okay. Again with him, it's not the juiciness, but uh, the the slightly chilling thing with George was Tsar Nicholas II, his cousin. Oh, yes, I remember this, yeah. Russian Revolution saw the Tsar overthrown and imprisoned. Uh, during a civil war in Russia, he was hoping for exile in Britain. Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, agreed to this, but George V refused for the fears of the impact this would have on public opinion in Britain. Think of the ramifications in 20th century history that could have had. And as a result, the Tsar and his entire family were yeah. executed. It's really dark. I'm not sure how long that is either, really. Mm. Also, Edward Milius, a French journalist, published a story that George V had secretly married in 1890, meaning that he was technically a bigamist and the royal children were illegitimate. Is this true? Unusually, Churchill and uh, George V decided to sue Milius and <laughs> proved that George hadn't been in Malta at the time in question and Milius was jail- jailed for 12 months. Okay. Uh, as George V himself said, I'm not interested in any wife except my own. Oh, well done, Georgie. And uh, to be fair with the Tsar, he was concerned at how this would, uh, if he had brought him over, what that would do in terms of radical opinion at home. Mm. Difficult times in the war in 1917... A lot of other monarchies are falling. They were our ally, though. They were our ally. Yeah. Mm, and it was his cousin. It's really harsh. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, though, there's not actually very much juicy scandal at all there. It's there's not, is there? There's only one person gives us our, our nice, uh, usual... Fun times. Fun time, cheeky chappy scandal. That's the uh, pineapple head William IV. Oh, piney piner boy. And William the Conqueror just as brutal as Henry V. They're just robotic, revenge-filled yeah. dreadnoughts. Yeah. Pun the pun for George V. <laughs> um, uh, Victoria, boring. George V, really? I mean, I don't know how best to describe that. It's quite shocking in a cold, mm. calculating way. It is, though, at the same time, it's, it is a difficult position to be put in. Mm. I mean, the, the, the Tsar was seen as the worst despot in Europe. So oh, really? prior to the war, he would yeah, it was really terrible, like the pogroms and all this sort of oh, stuff yeah. in Russia. Yeah. So socialists in Britain hated the Tsar. 
Okay. It would have been no. difficult anyway. It wasn't an easy. It wasn't like they were waiting at the the border. Yes, and then you sort of had a look and yeah. said, "Oh no, I don't like it." So it doesn't sit well <laughs> with me. So really, if you like a bit of um, scandal in the Charles II mode, William V Superman, fourth fourth Superman, but just that you know the murderous stuff, William the Conqueror, Henry V, and and Edward III, and no one of them does all three. No. So sort of murder, sex with nuns, yeah. newspaper style headlines. Yeah. Sort of. yeah, William IV, it's quite innocent, really, mm. all of that. There's nothing actually that's really for the for the ages scandal. Yeah. Just a bit of fun. Just uh, That's what we like. That's what we like. Subjectivity. So, William the Conqueror. Mm. We might not think he's going to do too well in this one, but no, let's, no. let's give him a bit of credit for okay. what he does do. Right. Early on, he mm. tries to be conciliatory towards the Saxons. Yes. So you have Edwin, Morker and Waltheoff, the Saxon nobles, all remain on his council. Church leaders retain their sees. Yeah, it takes them off on their team away day. Takes them on the team away day. Church reform. Lanfranc became the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was a learned and well-respected man in Europe. Maintained many of the Saxon saints. Right. Such as Dunstan. Oh, right, he's at the bottom of the pile. Uh, Saxon women were allowed to leave nunneries who'd entered in 1066 to avoid sort of forced marriages mm. after the conquest. Do they all get into forced marriages? Forced marriage. <laughs> Biggie is the Doomsday Book, an unprecedented survey of all the land and holdings as at 1066 and 86. So the land, slaves, cattle, everything, mm. it's all recorded. Slaves? Don't really think so. Yeah, slaves. Saxons had slaves. Yeah. Which Normans kind of do away with, really. So, yeah. It's kind of good, though, at the same time they have serfs, you know. Yeah, no, basically no land, better, really. Yeah. Yeah. And on William's deathbed, he burst into tears, praying for divine mercy, and he expressed penitence for all the bloodshed he had caused. It's a bit late, mate. On the other hand, something of an apartheid. Mm. From 1070, English bishops are being replaced. So in 1087, there's only one English bishop left. So he let them have them initially, though. Yeah. He let them, oh, but eventually. But then, yeah. then it changes. Waltheoff um, was the last English earl in position when he was executed in 1075. Why was he killed? Uh, involved in a rebellion, to be oh, fair. Okay. Uh, but still, after that, they're all gone. Uh, 1086, only about 8% of land is in Saxon hands. Gosh. No wonder they were uprising. Mm. There's no intermarriage for 100 years between the Normans and the Saxons, and then none for even further after that for the top Norman families. The Saxon Wheatan, which is this kind of parliament, which effectively used to elect the kings. Yeah. Yeah. That's done away with. No. And French and Latin become the language of the elite and the law. William did try initially to learn English, but gave up on it. Brilliant. Did he? My attempts at Spanish. (laughs) This is hard. I'm old. Forget it. We compared to Alfred, who was translating everything from Latin into English. The reversal of all that progress. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, Architecture. We've got the castles and cathedrals that we love today and the churches, but at the time... Towns used to be demolished to make way for garrisons and for castles. Uh, some of the old little Saxon minsters get torn down to be replaced by cathedrals. So really, these are monuments of victory, mm. and they're intended to intimidate yeah. the local populace. And really, the Saxons are better than the Normans <laughs> in terms <laughs> of objective? in terms of the subjectivity and the governance. Oh, totally, yeah. The Normans are really they're a military um, breed. Because that's their experience in Normandy, surrounded by people trying to invade them. They don't have time for all the culture and the administration. All but almost democracy as well, the military dictatorship. Whereas mm. you had the Wheatan electing the king, and you had those um, 
the uh, judicial sessions by the tree or whatever it was. But you could take yeah, any yeah. any issue straight up to the king. Mm. And that's all gone away for the next that's all gone away, 900 yeah. years. Normans didn't really have any experience of written law codes or advanced bureaucracy. The Doomsday Book is actually a Saxon achievement because it's the Saxon bureaucracy that allows mm. that to happen. It's much more advanced than anywhere else in Western Europe. Yes, I heard that that was the prize. It, was a, it wasn't yeah. a backwater, it was a prized possession. Yeah. It... Uh, women no longer able to own land, as they had been under the Saxons, as only Wolfiolf's widow gets mentioned in the Doomsday Book. And as we said in Scandal, really brutal tactics by William repressing uh, or suppressing rebellion. Arable land devastated between Hastings and Canterbury. Hostages mutilated at Exeter in 1067. The harrowing of the north, uh, we mentioned earlier. Cheshire, Staffordshire and Derbyshire record 10% of estates as waste in the Doomsday Book. So it's not a great time to be a subject. No. You feel the effect of being conquered. Yes. Edward III, however... um, Parliament, he regularly meets with barons, the clergy, the merchants, etc., so he gets support for his enterprises. And we start to see the normalisation of the House of Lords and the House of Commons. It's starting to take shape as those two bodies. And indeed, this is a really good period for the House of Commons. 1376 Good Parliament was the longest ever assembly at 10 weeks, the most petitions at 146, and it was the first ever speaker in the Commons. Oh, right, what year was it? 1376. Hmm. Justices of the peace are given powers not just to investigate crimes, but also to try them. Mm. So we really see at a local level a bit more control, a bit more flexibility. Going to the Saxon model a bit more. Mm. And we have much more national unity with the Hundred Years' War. We've had pretty much civil war under Edward II. Mm. But Edward III brings them all together with the garter and tournaments for the nobles. And then the wars and the victories at Cressy are hugely popular, of course, for the people. They get to celebrate these great wins. And it's a stable and peaceful reign at home. Mm. No rebellions, no unrest, really. Yeah, lovely. English becomes the official language of the law. Mm. So it's only with Edward III, so that's you know in the 14th century, years. yeah, 300 yeah. years later that English comes back in. And, and also cultural patronage under Edward III. Windsor Castle, huge amounts of money spent turning that into a magnificent palace. Introduces mechanical clocks to England, really? finally. And uh, court is resplendent with the tournaments and all this sort of stuff. It would have looked amazing at the time. On the other hand, Hundred Years' War cost quite a lot of money. Mm. caused a bit of a crisis in 1341 it was only because of the incredible successes that it was able, they were able to put off the money problems because yeah. victory trumps everything and you get money the Black Death of course not so hot not his fault no but from 1348 spreads very quickly overall kills something like a third of the population I mean, he, as you say, he couldn't have done anything about it. But what he doesn't do very nicely with regards to it is the Statute of Labourers in 1351. Yeah. Because all these peasants died, now the demand for labour... Oh, uh, so they're, they're, you must be controlling the market. Yeah, so the peasants are now have got the upper hand. Mm. So what uh, Parliament, or what Edward and the Lords try to do, is to fix wages at pre-plague levels. Pre-plague levels? Yes, yeah, so they can't bargain for a better deal, and prohibit movement of workers. So you can't just go off down the... Find a better rate. Yeah, yeah, better one. You've got to stay where you are. That's pretty... I don't really manage to make this happen, but we start. this is laying the foundations for the Peasants' Revolt. Yeah, I was just going to ask, when is it? As Edward the Fourth. Uh, so this is Edward This is Edward the Third, and he dies in 1377. The Peasants' Revolt is 1381. That seems direct, like a mm. direct result. Yeah. Wow. Mm, that's, that's pretty rubbish. Parliament, the the good Parliament, um, really, the fact that it's there indicates that court was increasingly corrupt. So they were trying to tackle uh, corrupt officials, getting rid of Alice Perez, all this sort of stuff. Mm. 
Um, but then the next year we have the bad parliament <laughs> in 1377 where John of Gaunt, um, one of Edward's sons, reverses the impeachment of corrupt officials, introduces a poll tax and pays himself £6,000 back salary. <laughs> Just goes in, damages everything and gives himself a big reward. And the sad truth is that Edward III, suffering all of his strokes, for his final years he's, he's just a passenger to national mm. decline, really. Henry V. Mm. He also um, manages to re-establish national unity. Um, so if any, the comparison between him and Edward III, they both sort of follow depositions or not long after depositions. Mm. So Richard II was deposed, Henry IV faces rebellions, but Henry V restores former enemies like Mortimer and he doesn't have any favourites. That's good. Gives Richard II a public reburial at Westminster Abbey and like Edward III uses war as a way to unite the nobility with a common Mm. cause and a common enemy. So there's only one major plot against Henry which is the Southampton plot just before he leaves for France. Three nobles plotted to kill him and replace him with Mortimer but Mortimer hears about it, tells Henry, ringleaders are all executed, Mortimer and Henry carry on fine. Best mates. Best buddies. We would be, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Whew, thank you. He has pretty cordial relations with Parliament, won huge grants for the French wars, uh, was praised for his pursuit of law and order, including by French chroniclers. Mm. Personally dealt with petitions forwarded from England, scrutinised officials, punished corruption. So he's governing from afar. English becomes the language of government, mm. and he's the first king to use English in his personal correspondence since 1066. Huh. And he's a bit of an international statesman. He got the support of the Holy Roman Emperor for his claim to France. And in 1378, he helped mediate the Great Schism, where there were two popes. And then uh, just like that now. One. We well, just yeah, yeah. yeah. On the other hand, mm. quite early in his reign, yeah, he burned seven heretics in his first few years. Lollards, as they were known. <laughs> I bet they weren't lolling then. Oh. Oh. Seven seems quite low. Uh, well, it's, I mean... We're not quite. We're uh, spoilt by the Tudors. Yeah, they loved a bit of it. Henry the Fourth only burnt two in his entire reign, so Henry the mm. Fifth do seven quite quickly. Mm. Okay. Uh, rapacious in his pursuit of money, mm. uh, including accusing his stepmother of being a witch so that he could take her dowry and burn her. Didn't burn her; he just oh, wanted okay. the money. Right. From 1416, Parliament are really starting to express concerns about the cost of war. Mm. In 1420, he actually stopped asking for taxation because he knew that it was going to cause a bit too much of a ruckus because they were fed up with paying. Many debts are left unpaid by 1422, so there are problems that are being stored up that he doesn't have to face Mm. when he dies. And indeed, Parliament increasingly critical of the war, um, and they're concerned that the Treaty of Troyes will see England become a second nation and that his concerns will be too French-based or that they'll be subjected to French laws. So there, there are tensions emerging with Parliament. They're not entirely happy with where it's going with the conquest of France. But not because he's not achieving. No, but because mm. almost achieving too much. And as you said, sort of said in Scandal, he's something of a zealot. Yeah. Mm. Believed he had a spiritual duty to punish people for their sins against God. And because he was an absolutist, he believed that whatever he wanted to do was God's will. So yeah. if you resist him, you're resisting God. That's a great excuse. Isn't it? Wouldn't let people look him in the face. Really? Uh, well, at least at people of a certain rank. Wow, gosh, I don't like this r- robot at all. <laughs> hey, his name even looks like a robot. Henry V. Henry Mark V. <laughs> That's what I called him. William IV. Um, the Great Reform Act is a biggie in 1832. Yes. This abolishes rotten boroughs, creates new seats in industrial cities, so likes of Manchester and Birmingham, Sheffield, etc. Hundreds of thousands of population but don't have an MP. Really? The franchise increases by about 45%. And in 
And she's saying William plays a role. He agreed to Grey's initial dissolution of Parliament when the Lords blocked reform, agrees to appoint weak peers if the Lords continues to block reform, and the country have been suffering riots. There are fears about whether there could be a revolution on the cards. There were a lot of revolutions in Europe at around this period. Yeah, he was a steady um, runner, wasn't he? He really helped steer the country through crisis. Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. Mm -hmm. Slave trade had already been abolished, but this is the actual existence of slavery is abolished throughout the empire. He's more of a constitutional monarch. He accepted that his role was to support the Prime Minister until he gets defeated in Parliament, regardless of what his views as King might be. Mm. And he works very hard at it. George IV, his predecessor, left a backlog of 48,000 papers unsigned. But William works into the night, blistering his hands, trying to catch really up. Really would. So bet he longs for cut and paste. <laughs> He's a very accessible monarch, thanks to his naval background. He's very mm. down-to-earth. Dockers are amazed when he used to visit for inspections and he just wander off by himself and chat to them. Mm. And most delightfully, on his succession, when he became king, he just went off for a walk down St. I James's love that. Street. I absolutely love that. Having a great time, attracting a crowd, uh, receives a kiss from a prostitute and then he went, <laughs> then went in a carriage. Yeah, he's a man of the people. Limitations, though, for William, I'm afraid. Oh, With the Great Reform Act, although he had that initial support where he agreed to the dissolution, when Grey first demanded peers... William thought, ooh, I'm not sure about this. There's a few too many for his liking. So Grey actually resigned, and William IV asked Wellington to form a government. Oh, he's too old? Uh, well, no, it wasn't when he was oh. too old, but uh, he couldn't do it. Peel wouldn't join the government because he thought that it would provoke a civil war. Yeah. And there is then a lot of anger directed at William because of this, because he's now seen as being an opponent of the Reform Act. Is this in public, though? Are people in public are aware of all these Yeah, theories? yeah. So, so he actually, loses a lot of his initial popularity. Yeah. But to the point, this really was to the point of fearing the Civil War. People were fearing it. Whether it would actually have happened mm. or not, we don't know. But, but he does it. And George IV, George III, maybe they wouldn't have done. Mm. So I don't know what it is about our, um, our lovable chaps, but they do have something of a penchant for slavery. Oh, not again. William spoke against the abolition of the slave trade mm. when he was in the House of Lords. Uh, said that the promoters of abolition are either fanatics or hypocrites, and in these classes I rank Mr Wilberforce. Mm, brilliant. Melbourne uh, became Prime Minister after Earl Grey. Uh, William refused to accept John Russell as a House of Commons leader due to his radical policies, and he then decided the ministry was weakened beyond repair, and so dismissed it. Right. So this is the last time ever that the monarch dismisses the government. On their own, just their own decision. But I mean, it's within his powers, isn't it? It is within his powers, yeah. Not uh, William's direct involvement, but policies under him. The Poor Law Amendment Act in 1934 saw the establishment of workhouses. Oh, yeah, nasty. Deliberately harsh regimes, so only the most desperate would apply. Mm. And unfortunately, with that, they abolish other forms of relief. Mm. So it's either this or nothing. Mm. Consequently, lots of people reluctant to enter at all, particularly northern England. Yeah, it's either abject poverty or just above the breadline and owned yes and he doesn't quite have the regality of some other monarchs um during george the fourth's funeral he was seen shaking hands and nodding affably to people nice and uh, he actually got up after about two hours during the anthem thanked the person for organizing and just went home <laughs> this has been great loved it loved it he didn't want to have a coronation which he describes as a pointless piece of flummery 
I like that. And when he first went to the Lords and had to put his crown on, he said, there, we've had the coronation. Good. I like no-nonsense. Flummery's a wonderful word <laughs> as well. I expect to see that on Facebook. And he's not a very cultured man. Slept through opera, was suspicious of all writers. <laughs> and uh, when presented with some artworks owned by George IV, he said, aye, it seems pretty. I dare say it is. My brother was very fond of this sort of knick-knackery. Knick-knackery. <laughs> oh, Victoria. Oh, God. The Victorian age. Just to list a few of them, we've got the invention of photography mm. in Britain and in France, the telephone, yeah. the radio, infrastructure with canals, railways, the London Underground, figures like Brunel, Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens. It's an incredible, bustling, busy, enterprising period. So the place to be in the world, isn't it? London uh, in Victoria's reign is where most of our common mythology is made. Medicine as well, with sanitation, public health acts, uh, industrial production of soap. Oh, at last. A uh, sewerage system. Chloroform gains popularity for childbirth. I bet it does. Um, entirely because Victoria uses it. Prior to that, people, men, thought that unless the woman suffered in childbirth, then it wouldn't work properly. God, you'd, you should see my acting, if that would happen <laughs> to me. Uh, oh, and antiseptics as well. Oh, just slip that in. Just slip that in. Yeah. Uh, political reforms. Uh, the 1867 Reform Act enfranchises some of the working classes, so about a million people extra added mm. to the list. 1872 Ballot Act establishes secret ballot. Mm. And the 1884 Act adds another six million to the franchise, so that's about two-thirds of all men in England and Wales now have the vote. That's pretty good going. Social reform, and again, so much of these, just to list a few, legalisation of trade unions, uh, a national system of elementary schools is introduced for the first time. Married women are given property rights for the first time. Great. And the population actually rises from about 14 million to 32 million. Whew. Victoria and Albert are very much the model family. Victoria's white wedding dress, oh, yeah. Yeah. that then becomes the default. Christmas trees become widespread after this period. Albert didn't introduce them, but they become more mm. popular. Of course, it's when Dickens writes Christmas Carol. Yeah. It's, it's starting, all these things are starting to get codified, British mm. ideals. Yeah. Uh, good works by the royal family as well. Albert's Great Exhibition in 1851 showcased British commerce. About six million people attended. And the money raised from it was spent um, on the South Kensington Museums. Oh, right. You know, enough today. Yeah, yeah. Victoria donated about £8,000 a year to charity, which is about 15% of the privy purse. Yeah. Uh, Patronised 150 institutions. Uh, in terms of race, Victoria, very much ahead of her time on this, um, she expressed indignation whenever officials showed prejudice in India, caused quite a stir by employing prominent Indian servants. Oh, yes, that, well, that's she, quite scandalous, I remember. Uh, she was one of the few who spoke against uh, calls for revenge after the 1857 Indian mutiny. Mm. Indeed, in 1858, she issued a proclamation urging toleration. Mm. Uh, she works very hard at her paperwork. Huge amounts of papers, I think, coming in from all her ministers, European correspondents, the empire all mm. over the world. Um, when she died, immediately this mountain of paperwork, almost overnight, builds up. So she is, she is beavering away. Yes. And she, she ends up hugely popular. 1887, 1897 jubilees, over a million people turn out to jeer her. She's probably at that point the most revered monarch in English history. But going from incredibly low approvals at one point. Well, at one point, but she was popular before and she was popular mm -hmm. after. Against her, it is still pretty hard in the Victorian era. Population increase and mass urbanisation means there's a surfeit of cheap labour. Mm. So a lot of poverty, lack of housing, so you've got overcrowded slums. Child labour with chimney sweeps and Nasty. working in the mines. 
Ireland, potato famine. Oh, yeah. Oh, dear. About a million died and then further million emigrated. The population fell something like 20 to 25%. Uh, not dealt with well at all. Food was still being exported to England during this period. That's awful, isn't it? And as we said, she does become something of a weeping widow. Mm. Uh, largely abandoned public duties for about a decade, including opening Parliament. Strongest that the Republican movement really been since Cromwell. And she could be a little bit unconstitutional at times. We mentioned the bedchamber crisis, where yeah. Peel can't form a ministry. Um, eighteen eighty, she tried to avoid appointing Gladstone as prime minister, just yeah, because he did like him. Yeah. And she actually corresponded with his rival Salisbury, the Tory leader, in how they could help propose his Home Rule bill. Mm. So she's mm. still meddling. She is a meddler. Well, that also shows she does still have quite a lot of influence. And finally, George V. A lot of good stuff under George. Um, early reforms, 1911 National Insurance Act, um, state support for sickness and unemployment for the first time. 1918 Voting Reform Act gives women the vote for the first time ever. Mm. In 1928, they full voting equality with men. During the First World War, there was an austerity drive at the Royal Court, so very spare meals and not too much flummery. <laughs> no, Nick Knackery. Changes the family name to Windsor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or British. Um, started OBEs. Jolly so you've actually got honours for ordinary mm. people rather than just... Oh, yes, yeah, that's a good point. ...the elite. Numerous visits to troops and hospitals and factories. As Lloyd George said, it'd be hard to overestimate the value rendered by his visits to munition areas, free from pomp or any trace of arrogance or aloofness. Mm. So Edward VII has started it, but really all these visits that George V does really is the Windsor dynasty as we recognise it today. He's yeah. the model, he's the blueprint. Yeah. And there are lots of crises for him to deal with in this period. Uh, in political terms, there's that impasse over the House of Lords' rejection of the people's budget at the start. He doesn't like the idea of creating new peers, but he says he'll do it if he has to. Mm. There's great alarm at the idea of a first Labour government just seven years after the Russian Revolution. Yeah, it was really good of him to sort of work with him because there could have been fear. Exactly. So he thought, well, election as it is, they're the people I have to ask to form yeah. a government. And he goes out of his way to be as friendly as he can as possible. Mm. A lot of them are won over. And they're normal people. Uh, but if that had gone badly, you could have seen Labour really having a strongly Republican outlook in its leadership. Yeah. And with, with monarchies falling, out, falling all over the place, you know. The general strike in 1926, he rejected government attempts to portray the strikers as revolutionaries, uh, urged Baldwin, the Prime Minister, to avoid any provocative bills. Uh, in Ireland, um, in 1913, on the verge of civil war, George organises a Buckingham Palace conference for all the leaders, including the Irish leaders. So they go around the table for the first time ever. Um, he was a staunch critic of the Black and Tans in the Anglo-Irish War, just doing yes, all this brutal stuff. Hopeless. As he said, this thing cannot go on. I cannot have my people killed in this manner. There aren't many monarchs in That's very good stuff. our history that really show a genuine concern yeah. for the Irish, which George V does. And he's sort of known as the people's monarch. His common-sense, no-nonsense approach very much fits the post-war public mood. He doesn't have any taste of ceremony, but he does it when he has to because mm. he feels that it's his duty. Royal tours across the kingdom to industrial areas as well as the leafy suburbs, so he gets seen by all of his people. At the Christmas broadcasts, so radio addresses to the whole country, so people hear their monarch for the first time. Yeah, this is this is the Windsor blueprint, isn't it? His his son followed him, he, the other one, hmm. and Elizabeth. It's yeah. it is it's really good like, modern kingship. Silver Jubilee, very widely celebrating, as the self says himself, I had no idea they felt like that about me. I'm beginning to think they really like me for myself. Oh, sweet. But, 
there are of course some downsides. It's a very, very difficult period. First World War, of course. Mm, not good. Huge casualties and hardships, and if that's not bad enough, it's followed by the Spanish flu. Domestic crises before the war, increasingly militant suffragettes, um, force feeding. Oh, that's gross. Then the Cat and Mouse Act, yeah. whereby they'd be allowed out when they got too weak and then re-arrested afterwards. They're fattened up, yeah. Uh, constant depression and poor living conditions, mm. uh, as shown by the Jarrow March. 1931, the formation of national government is maybe the only time constitutionally where George V steps a bit out of line. Ramsay MacDonald's the Labour Prime Minister and he was going to resign, but George V basically just gets him to change his mind because George V thinks it's better to have a coalition and he's a good Prime Minister. That's pretty good. Well, except that he'd agreed with the Labour cabinet that he was going to resign, and then he comes back afterwards and said, oh, actually, I've decided to form a coalition with the Conservatives. And Labour are nearly wiped out of the next election. Really huge divisions. Mm. Um, in Ireland, although George V shows Willie, it's still a very difficult period. In 1916, the Easter Rising in Dublin saw the execution of leaders and various civilian casualties. The Black and Tans, we mentioned, attacks on civilians. Anglo-Irish Treaty was then followed by a brutal civil war with a really terrible, long-lasting legacy. Mm. And funnily for a Rex Factor winner, he is kind of dull. Hates cars and planes and hunting and uh, stamp collecting was his big thing. <laughs> Love collecting. Philatory will get you everywhere. Oh, <laughs> very good. A bit of a Philistine as well. Yeah. When uh, confronted with uh, impressionist work, he then called to his wife... <laughs> Here's something to make you laugh, me. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Knackery. He is quite like William IV. They got on, yeah, they? they really would. And he's also a bit of a little Englander. Despite having been in the Navy, probably better travelled than any predecessor. Mm. He did say that uh, he thought abroad was awful. <laughs> I know because I've been there. Yeah. Brilliant. It's a bit of a Carl Pilkington. <laughs> so, I mean, I think... Obviously, you'd rather live in the more modern reigns than the medieval ones. Apart from Edward III. Well, I don't know, the Black Death, the response to the Black Death with the labourers leading to the Peasants' Revolt. and Yeah, but the other stuff's great. The, um, the justice... Of what... I mean, I'm just comparing him to William the Conqueror, Yeah. where you've got justice gone out the window compared to the Saxon model. Uh, all of the uh, language issues all of a sudden yeah. the harrowing of the north it's just it's just awful absolutely awful so is a in William's defence he did initially try to be nice mm. and then the Saxons just go and rebel so if they just behaved <laughs> I'm sure you'd have got on famously with them but there was still it was still a reversal of, of lots of progress from before mm. but like, the funny thing is we compare him to Canute 50 years earlier Canute is sort of praised for being a more like an ideal Saxon king. Mm. But at the same time, Canute just does kind of go in and initially just kill off anyone that he sees as a rival. And, but, and then integrates and then does it. Whereas, Whereas William yeah. tries to get on with everyone. And then this is rubbish. Yeah. So maybe if he just killed a few more people straight yeah, away. Exactly. Yeah. If only he'd been a bit more bloodthirsty. Yeah. He's not on the list. And um, Henry V, similarly... Can't really no, think they're of pretty well, well governed England in this period, and again, English becoming the language of uh, government for the first time. He's using English in his just those taxes, and he's just the war. He's the working time. well with Parliament, governing yeah. pretty well. He's united the nobles who'd been divided beforehand, mm. Mm. but still, it's pretty rough lot. I'm not sure it's that rough for English. I mean, it's the again, it's the French probably that's suffering a bit more. Yeah, French like it the most. But what are they really getting apart from tax? 
Military glory. Yeah. English. Yeah. Being promoted again. Finally. Mm. Um, but as same with Edward the Third. He starts it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. And it's very similar. Both of them are uniting divided nations with uh, mm. military victories, improving English, the us and them, the national identity. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's binding people together through language and war, mm. which are, are powerful. Um, of the modern ones, I'm seeing George V and Victoria mm. right up there. Yeah. George V probably edges it for me because even the bad stuff he doesn't really agree with. Mm. William the Fourth. It's nearly at that level, but only because he's just that sort of affable, yeah. nice chap. <laughs> he is, he is just a more, he's a better character, which does get you far in this competition. Mm. But, but I've got to be objective, and I think George and Victoria get, yeah, get the nod. The problem with William IV is there's an extent to which he's almost like a, a trial run or a caretaker manager. Mm. And it's Victoria and her reign is yeah, when yeah. all of those things really happen. Yeah. Yeah, true. It's not a division over the the age. We've seen great subjectivity scores from medieval monarchs. Yeah, yeah, Henry II managed it, didn't he? Exactly, with all his judicial changes. Yeah. You'd you'd prefer to be really a subject under Victoria than even George V. Well, yeah, she probably, yeah. Um, Because it was a hard time. Yeah. (laughs) The 20s, 30s and the war, of course. But the medieval ones aren't really interested in subjectivity. They're all about war. Totally. Longevity. So, how long do they rule? William the Conqueror, 1066 to 87, 20.67 years. Edward III, 1327 to 1377, 50.58 years. Mm-hmm. Very impressive. Henry V, 1413 to 22, is only 9.5 years. Which isn't very long, actually. Yeah, know. yeah. I mean, he's, he does a lot in that time, though. But having said that, of course, William IV, 1830 to 37, just seven years. Yeah. Very short. Particularly when the next reign, Victoria, 1837 to 1901, 63.58 years, the longest reign ever. And finally, George V, 1910 to 1936, 25.67 years. Yeah, I mean, that's the standard. Dynasty, not the programme. William the Conqueror, Mm -hmm. six children. Uh, Edward III has four children. Henry V just one. That's hopeless. I mean, that's Henry VI, who's just a baby. Mm. William IV doesn't have any legitimate children yeah yeah uh victoria has six children and she's of course the grandmother of europe and don't they do well <laughs> they do, yeah. they do. uh george v five children surviving him no, there's quite a lot of children in this yeah. group actually quite good for that mm. but now it's that final debate who has really got the rex factor although because as we said they've all got the rex factor yeah some of them have got that star quality in really, really obvious ways, mm. like Henry V. Yeah, legend in his own time, mm-hmm. present day, Agincourt, all of that, as you said, in less than ten years. And really, the only one who hasn't got that is William IV, because Victoria at the height of empire, Yeah. George V, First World War, Henry V, Agincourt, Edward III, Cressy, Cressy Poitiers. Edward III was invited to become a Holy Roman Emperor at one stage. That's how like incredible That's his standing huge. was at one stage. Yeah, the Arthurian court, all of those yeah, knights and adventures. I mean, it is just brilliant. Right? It is. It's the, what you like for for medieval knights in armour. That's it. Going to war. Yeah. This is that's yeah. the reign. William the Conqueror. You can never write him off. 
It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's like it's a it's a really grudging respect. Mm. You don't like him, no. but at the same time, You've got to respect what he's done. And in terms of a lasting legacy and something that makes an impact on history, Edward the Third, Henry the Fifth, does they it change it. an awful no, lot? No, not at all. Not, but William the Conqueror, he yeah. makes he really makes a mark. He, that's a turning point in our. And if that's what we're story. looking for. Mm. But as far as things that have a lasting effect on today, the, the winning the First World War mm. shaped 20th century history. All of the British expansion under Victoria. So and really, I mean, William IV can't really claim to have anything that did anything along those lines. Neither Henry nor Edward. No, they're, they're sort of temporary, really, aren't mm. they? I mean, they're glories, I suppose, that live long in the memory. Yeah. That, in a way, has an impact. I mean, the big thing in George V, of course, is that the incredible crises he faced. Three hung parliaments, two coalitions. He has to choose the Prime Minister four times. Home rule, the Great Strike, the Depression, monarchies fall in Russia, Austria, Germany, Greece, Spain, and the Ottoman Empire. So it's sort of survival, really. It's being it dull and just it's, plodding through. It is, it. and it's, uh, when you were saying how it was a bit... Dull. He was somehow was quite amusing with it. Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, he had something of the William Fourth about him, but not the getting drunk or all that. But mm-hmm. he, so it was a character that's come through. And although the First World War leaves a bit of a sour note, mm. um, it was one. It wasn't his doing, but he was there at the time. He couldn't help it, and the subjectivity was good mm. under him. And he saw us through crisis. So he does have that big battley win. And he has all these other things. He, I think we said at the time, he was what the nation needed, mm. exactly at that point. The problem is, Edward VII, in terms of the star quality, had got it. Mm. Edward VIII yeah. had got Definitely. it. George V was a, a sort of better king. Yeah. But oh, if he could just have had a bit of one of those. If he could have had even just an affectation. <laughs> yes. So it's remembered down the years, like yeah. he always wore a, a Panama yeah. or something. Mm. Just something. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think that should necessarily count against him. This mm. is about unearthing this greatness. Victoria, of course, is this huge figure yeah. in British history, and um, still casts a shadow, really. That and the empire, she's very much the embodiment. I think also when she dies and the impact that it has, the Daily Telegraph is saying, "Who can think of the nation and the race without her?" And the Spectator said, "We have reached our zenith, and the nation must now begin to decline." Oh, yeah, that's how mm. central she is. You can see that it must have been because because she was all this all this change happened just under her reign. Mm. She'd been there for so long. That sense of unease when that something so reassuring and constant goes. And she has this international standing as well. So because I said grandmother of Europe, mm. I mean that's pretty much literal. So like the Kaiser was her mm, yeah. eldest grandson. There's mm. one time when he praised the Boers for resisting a Jameson mm. raid, mm. and he sent a letter publicly doing this, and she reprimanded him in private. And then he was very like, contrite afterwards. Yeah. So she could give the Kaiser a telling off and could he'd have to con- apologise. Yeah. Control world politics with a ticking off. So he quipped that um, his grandmother would never have allowed the First World War to happen. Yeah, I bet. As Bismarck said, that was a woman one could do business with. <laughs> we can debate the who's more deserving, mm-hmm. who makes that impact, mm-hmm. as we've been discussing. But if your thing is for the sword held aloft in the medieval warfare... There are three medieval monarchs there for you. If you like the empire and all that sort of stuff, that's there for you. If you like a mix, which you're perfectly entitled to do, just which yeah, one yeah. stand out for you? Exactly. Don't don't. Um, you've got a chance to save. Well, you've got a chance to vote for three. Yeah. Here. So, have a think and be objective. I mean, you know, I'm a fan of the sword waving aloft, mm. but 
I don't want to lose some of these guys because they 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 serve that job. They do the Rex Factor well mm. and perhaps better than some of the other ones. I think it's time to vote. I'm ready. So for the first time, you know, I'm actually prepared. I'm not going to be <laughs> agonising over this. It's clear. You look. Uh... I'm confident. I'm going to fill it out for you this time. <laughs> oh, sugar. Done it wrong. I've done it wrong. <laughs> I've written Henry the Fourth. <laughs> I wish I was an Edward the Fourth this time. <laughs> I voted. You've done. You have beaten me. Okay, I'm happy with that because I, I reckon it's an unorthodox choice, mm-hmm. but it's done with with a with a faithful heart, <laughs> and I think that perhaps the other two colleges might save one of the people I've got rid of anyway. It's not tactical voting, it's exactly as I imagine it. You sound a little happier, you sounded quite traumatised in the previous two rounds. Oh, it's awful. It was absolutely awful. I really, I like this group though, it's nice to have that comparison. Yeah. So, Ali and I have voted, but of course now the important thing is that you go on to rexfactor.wordpress.com, click on the link and vote in Group C and indeed in Group A and Group B if you haven't done so already. The surveys are all open until the 31st of March. Yes. At, uh, 11, one minute to midnight. Mm-hmm. So you've got the whole of the 31st of March. Uh, and then we'll have a results episode where we will reveal how we have all voted and who is going through into the semi-finals and who yes. is going home. So, next time we will be here to do the results. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio. Cheerio.